If you would, to open your Bibles to chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. We uh, continue our way through our study of the Gospel of John today. Finally, having completed chapter 1, making our way now into chapter 2. And you remember, of course, uh, the purpose of uh, that John has laid out for us as far as why he's writing this Gospel. You do remember that, right? Right? You do remember that, right? Okay. Lie to me this morning if you need to. We can confess it later, all right? Um, John is writing this gospel uh, so that those who might read it, whether it be in his day or uh, thousands of years later in our day, might come to know the true identity of Jesus Christ. They might know him as Christ, the Son of God. That is the important point that John is trying to make. He's wanting people to understand that this Jesus Christ who grew up in Nazareth, this Jesus Christ who would have been familiar to the readers of his day, maybe less familiar to the readers of our day, that this man was more than a man, that he was more than just a person, that he was more than just a good teacher, that he was superior to any of the prophets, that he was in every sense the Christ, the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. He was and is the Son of God. That is John's overarching purpose in writing this gospel. And so John laid out for us in chapter 1 this remarkable prologue that we've been studying for several weeks where he takes us all the way back to the beginning of time and he identifies Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as being present and as being part of creation and as ruling over all things. And he takes us, transports us through his history right back to the present time of his day and of his writing. And when we make it to chapter 2, he begins to recount for us the life and ministry of Jesus and some of the events that took place along the way. And so as we pick up in chapter 2, we see kind of a mark in the, the, the transition point, if you will, in the gospel. He, he, the prologue is ended, and now he begins to point us to the life and ministry of Jesus. And he's going to uh, recount for us some selected events in Jesus' life and ministry. And I say selected events because there's no way John could record for us everything Jesus did, right? I mean, you wouldn't be able to carry the book around if he did that. Um, John is going to record for us selected events. And he's going to select the events that are going to point toward his ultimate purpose, that are going to point us toward Jesus as being the Christ, the Son of God. So you could look at this as John making a court case before us, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And he's laid out for us some of his opening exhibits, if you will, in the prologue. And now he's going to point to some events in Jesus' life. And he's going to say, here's what happened, and here's the significance of it. See, here's more evidence to you that Jesus is the Christ. Believe on Him. Believe on Him and be saved. That's what John is going to be saying. And so when we begin chapter 2, it's going to take us quite some ways through the Gospel of John to complete this middle section here of continuing evidences from the life and ministry of Jesus pointing to His true identity. And one of the marks that John is going to present to us along the way that identifies Jesus as being the Son of God, as being God in flesh, deity, if you will, one of the, one of the things that he's going to point to throughout the gospel are going to be some of the miracles that Jesus does. And he's going to record those for us, and he's going to point them out to us. He's going to say, look, who could do such things as these apart from God? And the answer to the question, it's a rhetorical question, the answer to the question is what? 
Well, it's no one. No one could do these things apart from God. And that's going to be the conclusion that John's going to point us to and insist that we draw. And once we draw that conclusion, he's going to call us to believe that that's who he is. And so we're going to see John point us to some of Jesus' miracles. Now, uh, you're going to note that John records selected miracles. He certainly does not record all the miracles Jesus does. In fact, when you go back to the synoptics, to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find many of uh, the other miracles that Jesus does recorded there by those gospel writers. But John selects particular ones for a particular reason. And because they particularly point to what Jesus is doing and saying and who he is. And we're going to encounter the first of those miracles today, right at the outset of chapter 1 in verses 1 through 11. The first miracle that Jesus did, we're told, and a remarkable miracle, a secret miracle in some sense, but a miracle nonetheless. And it's important to make a couple notes here, I think, right at the outset about Jesus and miracles. Jesus, being God in flesh, could do whatever he wants, agreed? He could do whatever he wants, anytime he wants, any means he wants. And for him, I mean, for us, a miracle is something extraordinary. That's what makes it a miracle, right? Ordinary things we don't go around calling them miracles. Why? Well, they're ordinary. That's right. An ordinary isn't the same as a miracle. A miracle is something extraordinary, something out of the normal, something unusual. The idea that something supernatural has invaded the, the, the ordinary um, that, that isn't done by ordinary people. That's what makes it extraordinary. That's what makes it miraculous. And Jesus had the ability to do miracles whenever he wanted to. But it's important to note that when Jesus does miracles, and you'll see this as we walk our way through the gospel, when Jesus does miracles, he never is doing them for the purpose of putting on a show. Jesus isn't a magician walking around pulling rabbits out of the hat for people's entertainment. Jesus doesn't do miracles just for fun. He does miracles for very specific purposes on very specific occasions. And and usually, well, I would say... Off the top of my head, I can't think of an, of, an, um, of an exception to this. Almost in every case, when Jesus does a miracle, the miracle is not the point of the event. The miracle is points to uh, some message that he intends to deliver that contains truth that he wants people to believe. So in other words, Jesus says something or he teaches something, and in order to verify that he has the authority to teach such things, and in order to motivate people to believe what he's teaching, he performs a miracle that identifies him as both being qualified to teach such things and qualified to be believed upon. And so Jesus does miracles to verify the preached message that he gives. And we'll see this throughout the Gospel of John. Normally he explains that, or John explains it to us, or he records a, a, something that Jesus says that explains the miracle. Like later on, we're going to see a couple of examples. We're going to see um, Jesus multiply some bread and some fishes. You're familiar with that story, perhaps. And he's going to feed some very hungry people. And that's going to be a miracle that he does. That's really marvelous and, and unexplainable and miraculous on all fronts. But right at the end of that, Jesus is going to turn around And he's going to teach something. He's going to say, look at me. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me and eats will never be hungry. You see, the miracle wasn't the point. What was the point? The identifying message that I'm the bread of life and you must come to me and eat if you want your hunger quenched. So the miracle pointed to the message. Jesus is going to do this on other occasions. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And you know what he's going to say right in the context of that? He's going to say, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though he dies. You see, the miracle of raising this man from the grave was not the point. The point was what? The message he was about to deliver. His identity being the resurrection and the life. And the miracle simply pointed to that. 
And so this is typically what the miracles serve. And John points this out to us throughout. In this first miracle, what makes it a bit unique is that Jesus doesn't explain it and John doesn't give us a lot of explanation. So we have to do some work to make some sense of it. Um, But it's important to know that Jesus does not do miracles uh, for show. He does them for a purpose, and the purpose is usually to point to something, some truth that he's trying to convey about himself or his mission or his ministry that will lead people to believe on him. That's the purpose of these things. There's always a deeper meaning. There's always a spiritual meaning behind the miracle. In fact, you'll find, if you study the Gospels, sometimes Jesus is asked to perform miracles And Jesus will often, upon being asked to perform miracles, you know what he normally says? No thanks. No thanks. And in one case he says, look, I've done enough miracles. If people haven't believed based on them, they wouldn't believe if I did a hundred more. That's the point. So Jesus does miracles, and they point to the message, and they point to his identity. And John is going to record some of those messages or some of those miracles in his gospel. We hit the first one um, today in our text. Now, before we jump into the text, my be good for us to do a reminder here. What has Jesus been up to since he was born? Okay, when we jump in chapter 2, verse 1, we jump right into his life in ministry. What's been going on since Mary and Joseph and, you know, the manger and the, the wise men and the shepherds and the star and all that? What's been going on between then and chapter 2, verse 1? Well, Jesus was born. What happened after he was born? Say that again. Okay, he grew up. That's true. He grew up just like every other person who's born does he grows up Uh, we see a couple of events early on we see his family flee to egypt um, to avoid the the murder of all the firstborn children so uh, that they're warned in a dream to do so they go to egypt for a while they come back um, to to his home area Uh, we see at at the age of 12 uh, an event takes place in jerusalem at the temple mary and joseph go there with jesus they leave and they forget and leave jesus behind you remember that story we see that Um, Then we don't have much information about what happens in the rest of his time growing up from that point. But we do know he grew up. It tells us he grew up in in wisdom and in stature, just like other people grew up. He grew up. He worked as a carpenter, probably learned it from his father. That was his father's trade. And he grew up in Mary and Joseph's home like other children did. Um, We we see that uh, the next event we see is he's identified by John the Baptist and baptized. Um, He's baptized, and that kind of marks sort of the beginning of his public ministry. John the Baptist, Pastor Frank um, uh, told us uh, last week, uh, identifies him as being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So this has happened up to chapter 1. Immediately after Jesus' baptism and before his identification as the Lamb of God, something else happened. Do you remember what happened? All right, right after he was baptized, immediately he was led away into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. So that's taken place. He comes back, and it's then that he's identified by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's where we pick up in chapter 2, verse 1. All those things have happened, and now we're about to see the public ministry of Jesus take off. Instead of reading our text all the way through, I'm just going to give it to you bit by bit as we work our way through it because it's a narrative and it just seems to, to work its way through uh, best that way. <clears throat> by the way, I, I should have mentioned this a little while ago. Je- Jesus lived at home with his family and his family included his mother and, and his father at least for some period of time. By the time we get to chapter 2, 
um, actually, actually after the event when Jesus was 12 at the temple. We're not, we don't ever hear anything about Joseph again. So um, most folks would assume that Joseph, his father, has passed away at some point after age 12 and before we read about his public ministry. So I think it's safe to assume that. But it wasn't just them because uh, according to Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 through 56, we find that uh, Jesus had brothers and sisters that grew up in home with him as well. And they show up throughout uh, the Gospels as well, particularly his brothers. Um, So we find that in Matthew chapter 13. So that's what's been going on. And then John tells us uh, here in chapter 2, verse 1, uh, the first event that he wants us to think about in relation to the life and ministry of Jesus, the one, the first um, event that's going to advance his purpose of pointing us to Jesus as the Christ. And beginning in verse 1 and 2, here's what John tells us. He says, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So John sets up for us the context of this first event. He tells us um, a time frame there. Did you catch the time frame? When is this event happening? It's happening on the third day. Well, on the third day after what? Well, the third day most uh, makes most sense. The third day after what he's just told us about the calling of Philip and Nathaniel. So on the third day after that took place, that's the end of chapter 1. On the third day after that, this event takes place. And he tells us not only the time, but he tells us where it takes place. Did you catch that? It takes place in a, in a, in a town called Cana in Galilee. Uh, this was not a really well-known city. That's why the in Galilee is, is added on there. Apparently there might have been other places called Cana. So in order to know which Cana he was talking about, he says the Cana, well, the one in Galilee. Um, best we can tell, this was a town that was about four mi- somewhere between four and nine miles sort of north of Nazareth from where Jesus lived. There's a little map you can see. Um, <clears throat> Uh, Cana, if you advance one, one for me, Josh, uh, Cana will get circled there so you can see it right in the middle. There it is, Cana. You can see it's just above, just north of Nazareth, so not very far from where Jesus grew up, not a very far trip. Cana is where Nathaniel, one of those disciples that he's just called, he is, this is his hometown, Cana. And so this event that John transports us to three days after um, the calling of Philip and Nathaniel is taking place in this town called Cana. And, you know, all you really need to know about Cana is it's, it's like nobody town. It's, it's, it's where nobody important lived. Cana was an out-of-the-way sort of a place. I don't know, you think of an out-of-the-way sort of place here? I don't know, maybe Jedburgh or something. I don't know. Um, Cana is kind of an out-of-the-way place. It's a place where, where you wouldn't normally think of somebody important being from. If you were important, if you had money, if you had wealth, Cana was not the town you moved to. Suffice it to say, the people who made up this town, who lived in this town, were not the elites. They were not the most popular people in the world. They were not the wealthy of the first century. It was an out-of-the-way out sort of town with very unimportant sorts of people who lived there, typically poor people who lived in this town. And this is where the event takes place. Uh, the folks are so unimportant that John really doesn't even mention the names of any of the people involved. Uh, We're going to have a wedding that's going to take place, and he's not going to tell us who's getting married. He's not going to tell us anything about the families of those getting married or even bother to name anybody in the town. Um, It's just not important to the story. And Jesus is going to choose or has chosen for this place to be the location of his first miracle, an out-of-the-way place where nobody important lived, largely poor people. Um, You could probably draw some conclusions from Jesus' motives and uh, his heart in identifying just the town where this first miracle takes place. 
And so that's where we are. It's a time frame on the third day. It's in Cana of Galilee. And he tells us further about the context, that the context of the story is a wedding. Now, uh, weddings were very different uh, in the ancient Near East first century than they are today. You would imagine that, right? So how many of you have been married before? That is, you've been through a wedding. Yours. Keep your hand up and admit to it. Be proud of that. Yes. Okay. Okay. How many of you have seen a wedding before? Okay, everybody probably can raise their hand on that. You all are familiar with weddings in our culture. Um, but when we read this, we think weddings in our culture. But weddings in this culture are nothing like weddings like the one that happened in Cana in the first century and the ancient Near East. It's important for us to understand a little context about those kind of weddings, for us to catch the gravity of this event that John is going to record for us. First thing you need to know about first century weddings is they were arranged by parents, right? They were arranged by parents. Um, You got married to the person that your parents arranged for you to marry. Now, kids, those of you, I say those of you who are kids, those of you who are not married, um, how do you you like that arrangement? Would you like mom and dad to be picking out your your spouse for you? I don't hear any amens out there, so I'm assuming that's probably not advisable, right? Um, Now, parents, on the other hand, how do you like that arrangement? And the parents all say, yeah, we could do a good job of picking out a spouse. I mean, think about the mileage you could get, I mean, out of that when they're growing up. You better listen to me. I'm going to pick your spouse. You, can you, right? You better do what I tell you. Uh, I get to pick who you're going to spend the rest of your life with. I, I hold that in my hand. You know, do what I want. As a parent, I'm thinking I could, I could go a long ways with that one. Especially those teenage years. You know, you get the teenage years, you could use that one a lot. But in the first century, they were arranged by parents. These days, people marry who they want to marry. Uh, but in the first century, in, in Jesus' day, in John's day, uh, they were arranged by parents. And, and the way this all worked out was these relationships began after being arranged by the parents with what's called a betrothal. Now, what happens in our culture uh, before people get married? You find somebody you, you know, you're attracted to, you think you might like to marry them, you ask them to marry you, and then that commences what? An engagement period. Okay, an engagement period. In our culture, it's an engagement period. It's just kind of like, I don't know, it's like more exclusive dating, right? I mean, uh, if, if, you, if you you know get through the dating, the engagement part, you might find out along the way that there's stuff you don't like in that person and you decide, no, nah, this maybe isn't the person for me or, um, or, or whatever. You, you just break it off. You just break off the engagement and everybody goes their separate ways and and, you know, uh, maybe some crying and weeping and gnashing of teeth or whatever happens in the meantime. But uh, really no harm, no foul, no big public controversy and the such. That's how it works in our day. But in, in first century, it didn't work like that. There's a betrothal. And, and what happens is when, when a couple is betrothed, the contract is drawn up. And, and they go to the synagogue and vows are actually exchanged in the synagogue. Uh, but after that, the couple returns back to their respective homes. They go back home uh, betrothed. Now, at this point, they are, in every sense, legally married. They're legally married at this point. And yet they live apart for the betrothal. And this betrothal could last anywhere from two months up to a full year. Now, that doesn't sound like an exciting arrangement, if you ask me, but that's the way it worked. And furthermore, if you split up during the betrothal, uh, it required the the same thing that was required uh, of any married couple. You had to go through a legal sort of divorce at this point. So you're married. When you're betrothed. 
At the end of the betrothal period, what would happen is a wedding ceremony would take place. And the way this would kind of look is at the end of the betrothal, the groom would gather up some of his closest buddies and they would make a, a parade over to the bride's home. This would often happen at nighttime and they would carry torches and there would be lots of celebrating and there would be singing and it would be a big festive parade. You would think the bride would be excited about it. I mean, the, the groom would be excited about this, right? Um, the betrothal's over. He's going to, to his bride's home to meet her and to... Uh, finish this this uh, this process they would get to the bride's home and he would select a few of his closest friends to go inside her home everybody else would wait outside the home and they would go inside the bride's home and there a wedding ceremony would take place and they would uh, kind of complete the ceremonial part of the wedding and after that they would emerge from the bride's home and everybody would parade once again back to the groom's home and more celebration and and more fanfare in this parade back towards the groom's home and when they arrived there another very important part of the marriage process took place it was called the wedding feast the wedding feast took place and it was here that the family and friends and everybody would gather to celebrate uh, the finality of this, this husband and wife coming together. It would be a festive occasion and it would be a massive celebration. It would likely involve everybody, all the neighbors and family and friends. And the celebration would last sometimes as long as a week. Right? Long, that's a long time. I mean, we get married, we go have a party for a couple of hours and we're done, out of there, Right? Not in the first century. It, was, it could be a week-long celebration. And what you needed to know, it's pertinent to our text this morning, is that the financial responsibility for this festivity, for this up-to-a-week-long celebration, fell on the groom. On the groom. Maybe that's why he needed a two-month-to-a-year betrothal, to make enough money to pay for the party. I don't know. Um, but what you need to know about this wedding feast is it was culturally, culturally, it was, it was critical that everything go well in this marriage feast. Now, think about when you were planning your wedding, those of you who are married. I mean, you, you, give, a lot of, uh, you give a lot of time and attention to, that, to every, all the details of your wedding, to the ceremony and to the reception. And, and how many of you consumed a lot of time with that when you were planning your wedding? Nobody? You know, the rest of you just didn't care. It's like we showed up and got married and that was it. No? I, I look, I'm, I'm a pastor. I've been involved in a lot of weddings, and I watch brides, you know. And I've seen TV, Bridezilla. Have you seen that show? Okay, you understand. People give a lot of attention to the details of their wedding. You want everything to go just right. One of the most nerve-wracking things to do as a pastor is a wedding. I don't know if Pastor Frank feels that. I feel that way. I mean, because, you know, if I bomb a sermon, you know, you love me, and you'll come back next week, and you'll give me a second chance. If you mess up somebody's wedding, it's not like they're going to do that over next week for you. Um, you just It's an important day, and you want everything to go right, and you don't want to be embarrassed on your wedding day. That's even important in our culture. You amplify that by about a 1,000, and that's how important it was for everything to go right in the first century ancient Near East. Everything needed to go right, and a lot of attention was given to the details of the wedding feast, and it was very important culturally for these things to take place. And that's the context in which we find this first story that John introduces us to about Jesus. Cain of Galilee on the third day, a wedding feast is where we enter the scene in just a few moments. And he tells us about the only guests that are important to John. The first is the mother of Jesus, he tells us, is there, who is also known as 
Mary. You remember John doesn't name himself in his gospel. He also never calls Mary by name in this gospel. He always refers to her as the mother of Jesus. And we find here that Mary is already there. Jesus and his disciples are invited. It indicates to us that Mary uh, had some prominent role likely in this wedding feast. Maybe she was, it could have possibly been a relative or a friend of the family who was, who was getting married. But Mary had some role in this, in this wedding feast as, as part of the, of helping with it. And, um, and she's already there. Uh, Jesus and his disciples come, and uh, this really immediately sets Jesus apart from John the Baptist, the only other person we've been introduced to a bit here in the first part of John's Gospel. Was John the Baptist the kind of guy who's going to go celebrate at a wedding? No. The guy was wearing camel's hair and eating locusts and so forth. Not socially acceptable at weddings, really. And he wasn't much of a socialite anyhow. Um, but Jesus is different from John. The Gospel writers tell us that, that, that uh, John came neither eating nor drinking. That is, that he didn't get involved in those kind of things, but Jesus did. Jesus came eating and drinking, so do his disciples. And it indicates to us that Jesus, um, uh, Jesus enjoyed this wedding. He came to a wedding, this wedding party, and he enjoyed it. You know, sometimes we get a bad, bad idea of who Jesus is, don't we? Do you ever find yourself in your mind kind of um, uh, defaulting to some picture of Jesus as kind of stoic, um, sort of um, uh, uh, no fun to be around? kind of a stick-in-the-mud, sort of aloof kind of guy, kind of above everybody else. Uh, I think when we look at the Gospels, we don't see that picture of Jesus. We certainly don't see it here. We see a very relatable person, somebody who people like to be around, somebody who also liked to be around people in general. He would go to a wedding feast, and he would, he would enjoy that feast with everyone else. We don't have any indication that he acted any differently here at this wedding than anyone else. He goes there with his disciples, and by every account, he was enjoying the wedding like anyone else was. Chuck Swindoll says, This is the first of many stories suggesting that Jesus was always welcome among those who were having a good time. That's good to think of Jesus that way, isn't it? Always welcome among those who were having a good time. Um, Sometimes we get a a misadvised image of Jesus as being the opposite of that. but, but Jesus was, was enjoying himself here. Uh, he, he got the reputation of, of being a friend of, and also uh, his opponents would, would accuse him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners because he would, he would regularly get with those kinds of folks and, and sit down and have a meal and talk and in, enjoy company with them. Of course, we understand Jesus had a purpose. He says, I came for the sick. He came to, to bring them the gospel of himself. Uh, but by every, every, every indication, uh, he just enjoyed being around people, even sinners like tax collectors and so forth. Uh, he spent some time around them. And at this, this wedding indicates to us he, he liked to be around such events. John did not, John the, Gospel, uh, John the Baptist. Uh, he also tells us the disciples were there. Well, what disciples? The only five that John's mentioned to us that have been called so far, Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and the author of the Gospel who doesn't name himself, but his name is John as well. So that's the context. We have a wedding, third day, Cana of Galilee. Jesus is there. Everybody's enjoying the wedding feast. And then uh, a mess happens. Verse 3 through 5. Listen to what happens. John tells us, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So we've got this wedding feast, and this bride and this groom are there. They're celebrating with all their friends and neighbors and family, and something unbelievably embarrassing happens. Did you catch it? The wine ran out. The wine ran out. 
Now, in the context of, of this very lengthy celebration that could last up to a week, um, for the wine to run out, this was a serious issue. This was, this was not a minor deal. We read our culture into this. You know, if you're having a wedding and there's a bar and the wine runs out today, what happens? Well, you drink something else, right? I mean, you go get some Coke or you drink something else. You drink punch, that stuff that you drink at weddings. I mean, there's, a, there's coffee or there's tea or there, if you're in the South, it's sweet tea or there's punch or there's water or there's soda or there's whatever else there is to drink. You just say the wine's out and you move on to some other drink. It's no big deal. In our, in our culture, it wouldn't have been a big deal. But in this culture, it was a huge deal because you only really had two options for drink, water or wine. And you drank water most of the time, but you drank wine on special occasions, and a special occasion like a wedding was the very kind of occasion where one would drink wine. And to run out of the wine would be incredibly shameful. It would be incredibly shameful. It would be a public shame in the context of a shame culture where you don't want to be shamed. Running out of wine would get you shamed in a hurry. It would be incredibly embarrassing. It could very very possibly attach to this young couple who's just been married a social stigma that could last for the rest of their lives. That's how serious it is for the wine to run out. It's a big deal. You don't want to start out your marriage with social disaster, right? Who wants that? But that was... We're on the brink of that happening here. But it wasn't just incredibly shameful, embarrassing. There was another issue. Leon Morris, uh, a commentator, and there are other commentators who bring this out, but, but he points to the idea that in the culture of the first century, there was this strong idea of reciprocity. Now, that's a big word, reciprocity. reciprocity. I can't even say it well. Um, but what it, I, I, the idea is this, that if someone gives a feast uh, of a certain quant- quality and quantity, Okay, and invites all of his neighbors to it. When his neighbor's kid, son, gets married and the neighbor throws a feast, he is legally obligated to provide the kind of feast that is of equal quality and quantity to what he's enjoyed with his neighbor. Okay, so the idea here is that there's this legal concept of reciprocity. So, so we have a, a lot at stake here. It's not just social embarrassment. If you didn't provide that for your wedding... You know what could happen? You could be brought to court and sued. You could be in legal trouble. So this is not just an issue of social embarrassment. We're on the brink of here a potential lawsuit that the wine has run out. This is a huge, huge deal. And it helps us to understand the severity of the situation. We don't want to think that Jesus is walking into just this no big deal situation and chooses. What he chooses to do, he chooses to act. We'll note this at the end, out of compassion and love for this, this, this family. This, these parents, this groom who's prepared this feast and who's responsible for what takes place. He's going to save them from social embarrassment and shame and humiliation. He's also going to be potentially saving him from a lawsuit. So it's no small deal. That's why we have here, when the wine runs out, John tells us that, that, that Mary runs to Jesus and she says, they have no wine. It's a big deal, Jesus. They're out of wine. It's gone. Now, we don't know exactly what Mary expected Jesus to do. Um, we're told that this is Jesus' first miracle. So the idea isn't that he's been just you know, kind of doing hocus pocus his whole life for her to watch. But Mary does have some insight into Jesus that others don't have, right? Like what? Well, she remembers his birth, right? Um, some of the miraculous things that took place there. I, mean, I think more than anybody, she remembers his birth. She understands. She's been told that, that he's special. 
And she has some concept of, of who he is and what he's to become, even though those things haven't become public yet. She knows them. So whether she expects him to do something or not, as far as a miracle goes, uh, she at least comes to him realizing that he can do something should he want to. And uh, if it's true that Joseph died early on somewhere, it's possible that Jesus being the firstborn, Mary has probably relied on him like any mom would her firstborn son throughout the years to help her. But whatever the reason is, she goes to Jesus for help. And Jesus comes back with this really strange response, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Did you know that? Do you think that's a strange response? What does he say? He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. That seems like a strange way to talk to your mother, doesn't it? You know, if my mom said something to me and I said, woman, I wouldn't get much further than that when I was a kid. That'd be about as far as I'd get. Woman. Um, <laughs> in English, that comes off as awfully rude, doesn't it? You know, you don't just don't call your mom woman uh, unless you unless you want some sort of um, unless you're trying to elicit some sort of response. Um, uh, the translation gets us a little mixed up on that. In Greek, that, this phrase that's translated woman in English isn't nearly, uh, it's not rude. It's not rude. It doesn't come off as rude as it does in English. In fact, it's a rather polite term to call someone. Um, it, it's polite, and Jesus uses it on other occasions. He calls uh, Mary Magdalene by this same title later on. Um, he calls the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember her? Jesus encounters. He calls her by this title. Um, he calls the woman at the well the same thing. And from the cross, Jesus refers to Mary by this same title again. So it's not a rude, it's not rude, it's not uh, impolite of him to, um, to say that. So maybe um, here, we're, we're in the South. We're in Charleston, South Carolina. We're familiar with the word ma'am, right? So maybe that's a loose uh, 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 kind of analogy to what Jesus is calling her. Now, we use ma'am in a couple different ways. Like I grew up calling my mom. I would say to her, yes, ma'am. I would use that affectionately toward my mom as a sign of respect to my mom. That's not the case. That's not the, con- the kind of idea here. Um, we use the word ma'am other ways, right? You might, like in your grocery store, you bump into somebody and you may say, oh, excuse me, ma'am, right? You're not being rude to her and calling her a ma'am, are you? It's actually a, a polite way of speaking to, to a woman who's not your mom. It's in that kind of a way that Jesus is using this, this term with his, with his mother. So it's polite. It's not rude. However, even in Jesus' culture, it's not normally what you called your mother, um, you would normally call your mom mother. You would refer to her as your mom, not as ma'am. Calling her this woman, what's translated woman, it, 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 it indicated a distance. It indicated some sort of a distance. It didn't indicate closeness. So it's polite, but it's distant. It's not an intimate term. And Jesus is, is doing this intentionally. He, he's, he's, he's addressing Mary this way. He's doing it to indicate that, that their relationship has changed. What's that relationship been like up to this point? It's been like a mother and son. I mean, you, you're mothers who have sons. You understand that relationship. A mother who loves her son, a son who is dutifully obedient to his parents and doing what they have asked him to do and served in their home uh, in his proper place. But now everything is changing. Jesus is moving from out of Mary's house now out into his, into his public ministry as Messiah. And no longer, no longer is he the son in Mary's home. He's now the Messiah of the world coming to make himself known and the relationship has changed between he and Mary and he needs her to know that he needs her to know that and so he he uses this term from this point on it's no longer the will of his mother that he's concerned with from this point on it's the will of his heavenly father that he's concerned with 
And Mary is subordinated in his life at this point in some sense. It doesn't mean Jesus doesn't love her. He does. Um, but she no longer holds the role in his life anymore. His, his ministry, if you will, has changed. And that's, you know, that's all caps- encapsulated in this, this, this way that he addresses her woman. And he goes on to say, what does this have to do with me? Once again, sounds a bit rude, doesn't it? It almost sounds like, what, what are you, what's the big deal, Mom? What, this doesn't have anything to do with me. It's also a Greek idiom that doesn't come off as rude. It, it just kind of comes off as, why are you involving me in this in, in, a, in a more polite sort of a way? That's the question he's asking her. Once again, it's not rude, but it does carry a little bit of a mild rebuke. The indication here is that, that, that in some sense, Mary was imposing upon Jesus and trying to push him into doing something public before it was his time to do so. Before it was time on the Heavenly Father's time frame, time scale for him to come out and publicly make himself known. It's as though she's trying to push him a bit before his time has come. And Jesus feels this, senses this, and he politely but mildly rebukes her in saying to her this. What are you, what are you doing? What are you doing? My time hasn't come yet. My hour, he's going to say, hasn't come here. Um, John Piper says this. He says the gist of this phrase seems to be, I don't want you pressing in here. You shouldn't be coming to me like this. This is not your affair. It's not your place to be calling out my power. It's a way, a good way, I think, of saying it. But it is a strange way to respond because we know what is he about to actually do. He's going to do exactly what she's wanting to be done, right? So why do you say, why do you involve me with this when you know you're about to actually do it? And I think it all comes back to this idea he's communicating something to Mary. He's wanting to communicate to her. The relationship has changed. I now work on my own time frame, and that time frame is given to me by my Heavenly Father. I act only when He's ready for me to act, and only then, and, and not you, my mother, or my brothers, or anybody else is going to be able to manipulate that or push me outside of the will of the Heavenly Father. Matthew Henry says this, Though as man he was David's son and hers... Yet as God, he was David's Lord and hers. And he would have her know that. You know what? Jesus wants to make it clear that he's obedient to his heavenly father. And that's all. That from this point on, Mary, even though she's his mother, she doesn't have any inside track on coming to him. Nor does his brothers or his family. From this point on, she and they need to come to him just like every other man and woman needs to come to him as sinners who need a Savior, as sinners who must recognize His deity and bow before Him as Messiah, Christ, the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God that will take away even their sins. And He's indicating that to her. Mary, you don't have an inside track. My family doesn't have an inside track. Nobody has an inside track. And that's really good news for us, isn't it? It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter your wealth level. It doesn't matter your education level. None of those things give you an inside track on the Messiah. All of us, in some sense, regardless of our social status, regardless of our background, come to Christ at the same place. We all are sinners in need of a Savior. And that's the only way to come to Him. Apart from that, nobody has an inside track. We all come to Christ at the same way. It's not about religions, it's not about family, it's not about nationality. It's only those who come to Him by faith, who believe on Him by faith, who trust in Him by faith, who follow Him by faith. That is the only way to come to Christ. And it's true for Mary and it's true for everybody since then. And Jesus says, my time has not yet come.
that phrase, my hour, my time has not yet come. He uses that an awful lot. Just without spending too much time on that, understand when Jesus says, talks about his hour, he's talking about the hour of his crucifixion and his subsequent exaltation. All of that together. His crucifixion and exaltation. That's the hour. So when Jesus says, my hour hasn't yet come, that's what he's talking about. Later on, we get to chapter 12 and following in John's gospel. You're going to hear Jesus saying, guess what? My time has now come. So that's the point. And Jesus is saying here, it's early yet. It's not time for me to to make a big public display. It's not time for me to make a public display of my power and so forth. The time frame is not here yet. It's not time for that. Well, that's what he's communicating to Mary. Now, clearly he's not communicating that he wouldn't act because Mary then turns around and what does she say right on the heels of that? Well, listen, she says to the servants, what? Do whatever he tells you to do. Do whatever he, t- whatever he tells you to do, do it. And the idea is she walks off. She goes. You know, this is remarkable. It tells you something about Mary, doesn't it? I mean, think about as a mother how that must have felt to get that response. That must have stung a little bit, don't you think? It must have, it must have been hard for her, no doubt, to, to recognize this has changed. And our relationship will not be the same again. But Mary gives no indication of offense. She gives no indication of backing up or being hurt or offended. She, what she does is she responds by faith, doesn't she? She says, all right, I won't push. She just simply says to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, whenever he tells you to do it, do it. And she walks. And she's, she's, she's placing faith in him, isn't it? She's saying, I still believe you can do something about this, and I believe you have the power to do it, but you know what? It's not my place to push and tell you when or how, so I'm going to get out of the way, and you do it when you want it and how you want it. And then she's going to express that by saying to the servants, whatever he tells you, you go do. It's a faith response that Mary gives. See, the first time she comes to him, she comes to him as his mom and wants to push him to do something. The second time she comes to him, she comes to him as a believer and her faith is honored. Jesus responds to that. Just do whatever he tells you to do. Boy, that's good advice in any culture in any day, isn't it? Somebody tells you, hey, there's Jesus. You do whatever whatever he tells you to do, do it. That's good advice. We could spend the rest of our time just talking about that, couldn't we? We're not, because I think you understand it. Something happens. Chapter 6, excuse me, verse 6. The miracle takes place. We've explored the mess. Now here's the miracle. Now there were six stone jars, stone water jars, there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. So something happens. So Jesus and Mary have this interaction. Mary leaves, and Jesus does something. He acts on behalf of this, cult, this, this, this couple that's getting married. He says to the servants uh, a couple of things. He, he points them towards some stone water jars, and he says, fill them with water. Uh, just to get you the quantity here, you've got six jars, about 20 to 30 gallons, we guess, apiece. So somewhere between 120 and 150 gallons of water. And Jesus uh, points to them. Why are all these big jar, stone jars sitting around? Well, John tells us. Did you catch it? 
Because if you were a Jew, everywhere you went, you were constantly doing some kind of washing. You had to wash your hands before you ate everything. And you had to wash before you did this. And you had to wash before you did that. You had to wash all the utensils before you could use them. There's all this Jewish rites of purification. The idea you didn't want to be defiled or touch things that were defiled or eat with defiled hands or defiled utensils. So you always had to have a bunch of water hanging around for everybody who's coming to wash their hands, all the washings they need to do. And I hear my wife telling my son all the time, son, did you wash your hands? Did you wash your hands? I sometimes think I'm back there um, because he doesn't remember that very often. But in, in this culture, you needed a lot of water hanging around. You couldn't just turn on the spigot, right? So you needed big jars of water, and that's what was going on here. And so there were these big jars of water. Jesus says to the servants, fill them up. Fill them up. And we're told um, uh, that they filled them how high? Did you see that? To the brim. That's an important note that John gives us. He wants you to know, and he wants me to know, before we even hear about the miracle, he wants us to know that those suckers were full to the brim. Why is that important? Well, you couldn't accuse anybody of coming in and doing what? Pouring something else in there, right? Oh, this was no miracle. You can hear some of the skeptics today, the people who deny all the miracles of the Bible, who come in and say, they have to explain these kind of events. And it's really comical trying to listen to them explain it. They come to something like this and they say, well, um, here's how it works. You know, these big stone jars, they'd been used for wine before and there were some dregs in the bottom. So when they put the water in, it kind of diluted and it still tasted like wine. And everybody was kind of drunk at this party. And so they thought it was good, but that's only because they were drunk. The Bible doesn't tell us any of that, does it? But it's creative. Points for creativity, minus points for being foolish. No, John wants us to know this, these things were filled to the brim with water. That's all that was in there, water. And so he tells us there was water, and there was nothing else in this jar, in these jars. No tricks, nothing else. And he says, simply says to the servants, after they filled them to the brim, what does he tell them to do? Dip some out, take it to the master of the feast. Okay, now, I don't know about you, but this strikes me as odd. John does not ever say anything to us about how this miracle happened. Or even when it happened, does he? He just tells them to fill it up with water, dip some of it, and take it. So somewhere between when they filled them with water and when they dipped it to take it, somewhere between when they filled those jars and when the master of the feast drank the stuff, somewhere in between there, what happened? Water became wine. Water became good wine. Um, so, you know, you can read theologians, they debate about these things. I don't know why. Um, there's this argument, you know. Some think that, Instantly changed all those jugs full of water to full of wine, 120 to 150 gallons of good wine. Others say, no, he just changed the part that was dipped out. You know, it got changed on the way or something like that. Um, I don't really care how he did it. That's not the point, is it? I kind of think that he changed it all. And I'll tell you why in a bit. But he changes it to wine. This miracle takes place. The water turns into wine. We're not told when, and we're just told it happens. And by the time it gets to the master of the feast, this would have been just somebody who was assigned kind of like a wedding coordinator, who coordinated all the events of the, of the party, who kept the guests in line. Sometimes you wish you had that kind of person around. Um, and uh, they take it to him, and he drinks it, and he's like, wow, this is great stuff. He doesn't know what's happened, so who does he call? The groom. He calls the groom over and he says, what's the, what's the big deal, bud? I mean, normal people bring out the good stuff first when everybody's, you know, first tasting it. Let's say that. They bring out the good stuff and impress everybody. And then after a while, after everybody's had a bit to drink and let's just say their senses are dulled a little bit, um, you bring out the nasty stuff because they don't care at that point. But you, he says, you've saved the best stuff for late in the party. What's the deal with that? Now, you can imagine that the groom's probably as confused as anyone, right? He doesn't know what's happened either. Who knows? 
Jesus knows. The servants know. His disciples know. As far as we can tell, no one else does know. But this a master of, this, of the event says, man, this, what have you done? He calls the groom over and he says to him, you, you've brought out the good wine last. It's important for us to note that Jesus made good wine, isn't it? It's great wine. It's not just good wine. I, su- I suspect it's probably the best wine ever made. This wine didn't come from grapes. It wasn't ever fermented by grapes the normal way. This wine came how? I don't know. Jesus made it. He made it. He doesn't wave his hand. He doesn't say abracadabra, hocus pocus. He just says fill it with water and it just becomes wine. He just wills it to be and it is. What's a miracle for us is no, no big deal for him, right? The one who created the universe can make a little drink if he wants. You know, it maybe, well, time will allow it for just a second. Maybe a little side note here. Jesus made wine for this wedding, and it was good wine. Now, you uh, likely know if, you're, uh, uh, if you've been around Southern Baptist life a long time that Southern Baptists have historically taken a position against alcohol, right? They normally, have normally, as a denomination, encouraged folks who are part of the denomination not to um, uh, consume alcohol. Uh, alcohol abstinence, if you will, has been uh, the idea. Now, uh, you also know if you've been along time in Southern Baptist life, that uh, each church can do whatever they want to and ignore the denomination when they want to. And each believer can do that, too. And many do on many fronts. But um, every once in a while, what bugs me is you'll hear a, a Southern Baptist preacher get up and get a text like this or some other text that involves wine. And they'll try and inform us um, uh, in order to back up this idea that, um, that the wine was unleaded. Right. Have you ever heard that? Oh, this was unleaded wine. This wasn't, this was not, uh, this was not, uh, it had no alcohol content. It was, it was like Welch's grape juice or something. Um, they, they'll make this argument that biblical, the wine in the Bible was unfermented. It was, it was unleaded. Um, now, I, honestly, I've been looking for a lot of years because I've heard this since I was a kid. And I have yet to come up with any valid argument to back that up other than we really wish it said that so we could advance what we we're trying to advance in the church. In fact, all the evidence really seems to be the contrary. Um, in, a, in a warm climate with no easy means of refrigeration, it seems that grapes would ferment and ferment rather quickly. Um, it's very clear throughout the Bible that there are very specific warnings against drunkenness. Why would we be afraid of anybody being drunk if they're drinking unleaded wine? That makes no sense. And we have those kinds of instructions to the church. So it's clear that people in the church were drinking wine and drunkenness was a potential and even here in our text today, this is the best wine. I mean, nobody who drinks wine swigs down a bunch of Welches and says, boy, that stuff's great, right? Um, and this guy at the, as the master of the feast certainly wouldn't have had that conclusion. Um, it's clear, it's clear um, in, in this story and in the rest of the New Testament that when we run across wine, it is wine. It is alcoholic wine. It is not, it is not Welch's grape juice or some first century version of grape juice. It's wine. It's real wine. And it's wine that's leaded. And there is the potential for drunkenness when one drinks it. Um, yeah, it's a little different than what we had today. It was often diluted down to one third or one tenth strength in those days. Maybe the alcohol content of something similar or maybe a little less than an American beer. Um, full strength fermented wine in the, in the first century, according to Don Carson, um, would, would, would be equivalent to wine used today. And that uh, would be referred to often as strong drink in the Bible. Um, and it's much more regulated and cautioned against. But uh, we took, look, Baptist people, just deal with it. Jesus made wine and Jesus drank wine. That's what the Bible says. Just deal with it and move on. 
Um, it's the reality. Um, and because Jesus drank wine and Jesus made wine, uh, it's clear that simply drinking it, nor making it, can be what? In and of itself, sinful. Otherwise, we accuse Jesus of sin. Does anybody here want to fall into that category? I'm not accusing him of that. You go for it if you like. Um, I don't recommend it. Um, Jesus drank wine. He made wine. Now, that being said, I'll tell you this. I don't consume alcohol. That's a personal choice that I have made in my life. And I have reasons for that in my life. And by the way, that doesn't make me any more holy than somebody who makes a different choice in their life. Can I be clear to say that? Um, It is a personal choice I've made, and I have reasons for that choice in my own life. Number one, I just hate the taste and the smell of the stuff, okay? Bottom line, I can't stand it. It doesn't smell appealing to me. It does not taste good to me. And so I have yet to figure out why I should make it a habit to consume things that neither smell nor taste good to me. I don't do that with anything else. So, hey, you know, um, and in my culture, I'm not limited to the only alternative being water. I can drink some Coke Zero. I can have sweet tea, which I really like to smell and taste of. I can have coffee, which also appeals to me by smell and taste. So there's no reason for me to consume it. Um, Secondly, I've just seen the destruction that alcohol can often cause being a pastor Um, Pastor Frank can tell you we have the unfortunate privilege of caring for people sometimes when horrible things happen. And unfortunately, there have been many cases where I've sat in marriage counseling sessions where alcohol is a huge problem in a marriage and it's destroying a marriage. I've sat, I've done funerals for teenagers where alcohol was a major cause of the death. And it's not fun. It's not fun to bury teenagers and to know um, and to see the, the grief of their families and to know that maybe it could have been avoided apart from abusing alcohol. I've seen people destroyed financially because of their addictions to alcohol. So for those kinds of things, it just, it just gives me a personal distaste for this stuff. And frankly, beyond that, on a more personal level, I just don't need any more temptation in my life. Can I just say it that way? I have enough of that, thank you. I, God has given me you know, a life, and I'm happy with my life. But there's plenty of temptation in my life, and it's hard enough for me to manage and deal with what I've got. Why in the world do I want to introduce some other thing into my life that could potentially open up a whole new world of temptation for me? I don't have a handle on what I've got, so I'll just avoid that one for now. And I guess finally I just don't want to set an example that somebody else might follow to their own detriment. Um, maybe I could handle drinking some alcohol. Maybe I could. I don't know. Don't want to find out, but maybe I could. But maybe one of your kids in this church who sees me doing that can't and thinks it's okay. And I'm the pastor of the church, and I think my testimony matters. And I don't want to be accountable for that when I stand before the Lord. And so for those reasons, I choose to. That doesn't make me more holy. That's just a conviction the Lord has placed on my heart. You know, each individual has to wrestle with that on your own. But my point in all this is not to make an issue of alcohol. It's to to make the statement that we need to stop making the Bible say things the Bible doesn't say. Bottom line, whether we'd like it to say it or we wouldn't. And in this case, Jesus made wine. It was leaded wine, and it was good wine, and he drank it, I assume. The Bible has a lot to say about this issue of alcohol, and it says one consistent message. When you get drunk, you are in sin, period. That's it. When you get drunk, you're in sin. You could also make the argument that says you're a fool, but you also are in sin. And that's the part that matters. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And there's numerous other places in the text. You can look those up on your own. Um, and and these, these passages only make sense in the context of leaded wine. And that's what Jesus made. And John tells us in verse 11, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus made good wine. 
What would John want us to know about this story? Why does John give us this? Of all the miracles he could have selected to try and convince us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, what does he see in this story that he wants you and me to see? What does he want us to see? Let me give you a quick list. They're pretty obvious, I think. I think first he wants us to see that Jesus' public ministry has begun. That's happened. Jesus is no longer the son of Mary living in Mary's home. He's now the Messiah, and he's coming out to the world, if you will. He's coming out to fulfill his messianic role that the Old Testament pointed to, that the prophets prophesied of, that all Israel was looking to. Jesus was now stepping into the forefront to fulfill this responsibility. It's time for him to act, and he's coming forward. I think John also wants us to see Jesus' divine power. I mean, this is part of the point, isn't it? He wants us to see that Jesus is no mere man. The man who can say, fill it up with water, dip it out, and just by standing there, make that water turn into wine, the best wine. No man can do that. No good prophet can do that. Only the Son of God, only God in flesh can do such a thing. And John is wanting us to see that. Jesus has divine power. And it's clear that the disciples saw it because through the eyes of faith they saw it and it, he tells us they believed in him. Now they had already been following him. They had already had, had some respect and some attraction to him. But after seeing this, it says, what happened? They were convinced. They believed in him. They believed in him. He's the son of God. Thirdly, I, I, we just need to see Jesus' great compassion. Jesus' great compassion. He doesn't have to do any of this, does he? His time has not yet come to come publicly, so he doesn't do a public miracle. He does a private miracle. Why would he do that? I think it just speaks somewhat to his compassion and concern for this family, for this bride and this groom and this family who's about to be socially humiliated and perhaps financially uh, harmed for a long time. And so Jesus meets their need. He makes the wine and he saves the day for these people. He doesn't do it to get fanfare. In fact, he doesn't make any scene. And by all indications, very few people knew that he did it. But I'll tell you, there's a bride and a groom who are grateful that he did it. Because Jesus cares about people. How can we just say it that way? Even the details of our lives, he cares about those things. He's not just this divine God who's distant and unconcerned with where you're living and with what's going on in your life and what kind of struggles and needs you have in your life. He does know those things, and he is concerned about them. And I, probably, I would suspect that probably if you looked at your life real closely, you would find that he has met even the smallest little needs of your life that he didn't have to meet because he loves you and has compassion on you. That's who he is. He's a divine power, but he's also a great compassion. We see his abundance of grace as well, his abundance of grace. I mean, 120 to 150 gallons of wine, that would have more than satisfied this whole wedding feast. And it probably would have given this bride and groom a good bit of really great wine left over to sell and have a little cash to start out their life with. Probably would have been a good thing. I don't know about you when you first got married, but a little extra cash wouldn't hurt, right? Jesus doesn't just supply exactly what was needed. It looks like... He supplied abundantly more than what was needed for the moment. And it's, a, it's just a little, a little preview to us of what Christ does for every believer, isn't it? Later on, we're going to see Jesus say, I've come that you might have life. And not just have a basic life, but to have what? To have it abundantly. He comes to fulfill our, our needs abundantly, more than we could ever hope or imagine. Jesus isn't one to skimp with his people. Finally, the last thing you need to see is this. In this little miracle, it's not a little miracle, it's only little in its scope of who knows about it. 
Jesus is previewing his coming ministry. He takes this water that represents Old Testament Jewish dead faith. They required people to wash their hands all the time. And all those washings were simply a reminder that they were dirty and that they needed to be cleaned. And it wasn't just about hands, it was about hearts. And God had prescribed those things as a regular reminder of the people that they were filthy on the inside, that they had violated their holy God, and that they needed to ultimately be cleansed. And so these washings were constantly required of them to remind them of that, although none of the washings could ever completely take care of that problem because the next time they ate, they needed to do what? Wash again and wash again and wash again and wash again. The Old Testament ritual, this ritual religion of Old Testament Judaism that Jesus encounters in his life and ministry is a dead faith that can't save anybody. And it's symbolized by this regular washing. And Jesus is saying here, by turning that water used for washing into wine, which is later going to be in the Lord's Supper, representative of what? His shed blood on the cross. He's saying, this old dead faith of ritual religion, I've come to change that, to transform it. Away from something that can't possibly cleanse your heart, I'm going to turn it into the wine of my very blood shed on the cross that will keep you from ever having to wash again. My blood, you wash in once, and it completely cleanses you from all sin. It makes you whole. Jesus is saying, that's what I've come to do. And his very first miracle, the cross, is in view. That's the point here. The cross is in view. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die for your sins. And I'm going to transform this dead faith into a living faith. And if you will see me for who I am, if you will come to me by faith as the Christ, the Son of God, whether you're my mother or my brother or a complete stranger, you will experience a washing on the inside that will set you free will cleanse you of every sin and every violation against my Father that will give you eternal life. Won't you believe on me? Won't you come to me? That's why John includes the story. That's what he would have you to hear this morning. And it's what he would have you to believe. He would call you this morning to say, Believe on Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. His blood shed for you. Believe on Him today and be clean. Be clean. And I wonder, would you do that this morning? If you've come here today and you haven't come to Christ on those terms, come to Him on those terms today. Whatever your background, whatever your history, whatever your religion, whatever your family, whatever your social status, none of that matters. What matters is your faith. Do you receive Him, Christ, the Son of God? Lord Jesus, we... We marvel at your glory. We marvel at who you are. Your wisdom, your power, your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your love that ultimately leads you to the cross. We see all of that in this little encounter where you change water into wine. You help this young couple. And the miracle is grand and as beautiful and as wonderful and as majestic as it is points us to truths that are even more glorious more majestic. You are who you've said you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are God in flesh who's come to seek and to save those who are lost. You've proved it by your life. You've proved it by putting your power on display. You ultimately proved it by shedding your blood on the cross. And this morning, there is not a human being in the hearing of my voice that is beyond being transformed by the wine of your blood. There's not a sinner whose sin is so dark that you can't cleanse it, that you won't forgive it.
if they'll simply come to you by faith this morning. And I pray that for any man or woman who's in this room who hasn't come to you on those terms, who hasn't recognized you, believed by faith in their heart that you're Christ, God in flesh, come to save them. And that by dying on the cross and ultimately being raised, that you've conquered death and hell. And that you hold out the offer of eternal life to them today if they'll just believe upon you and trust their lives to you. Call them to yourself this morning, O Christ. Open their eyes that they might see. And for the rest of us, make us love you more than ever. Draw us to yourself. For your power and your compassion and your mercy and your abundant grace, we give thanks. Amen. Amen.